You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Dorothea Lange is one of the most famous photographers of all time, but if you don't recognize her name, it's okay. You definitely know her work. Seriously, close your eyes for a few seconds and think about the Great Depression. Whatever you're picturing in your mind right now probably looks like a photograph Dorothea Lange took. Homeless men at a soup kitchen, oaky families by the side of the highway, a stressed out looking mom holding her dusty kids, These photos represent a whole era. Probably every U.S. history textbook that you've ever had uses her pictures to show what the 1930s looked like. Here's Dorothea's goddaughter, Berkeley resident Elizabeth Partridge. I'm Elizabeth Partridge, and I've done a number of projects on Dorothea, primarily books, although I have helped a couple of people work on film projects. Before the Great Depression, Dorothea was a portrait photographer and her clients were the most elite families in the Bay Area. But then, practically overnight, she shifted her focus completely. She went from taking pictures of rich people in her fancy studio or in their mansions to photographing the poorest of the poor, out in the streets or in farm fields. I think she was just born full of a lot of spit and vinegar. Uh, Honestly, I do. She just, you know, that was her nature to be a fighter. And because of her own, the strikes against her as a kid that she had to fight against, she didn't soften. She was always willing to take on anything, even, you know, even a big system. She wanted to show people why it was unfair. One thing that's clear from looking at Dorothea's work is whose side she was on. Dorothea always had trouble with authority. So she was always on the lookout for where it was messing in somebody's life. If you look at her photographs of the tenant farmers and the kind of quotations she would put underneath the photos about, um, there's one beautiful one she does of, um, it's an African-American guy and he, and the quote underneath is, you heard about the tractor? That's against the black man, too. They're trying to kill us off like they killed off the mules. It's just painful and cuts right to the heart. Dorothea's photos told stories. Not just individual stories, but a big story. The story of America. What industrialization and modernization were doing to families and communities. And not just in the Deep South or the Dust Bowl. Right here in the East Bay, too. I think she saw the changes that were happening to the Bay Area after World War II as really emblematic of changes that were happening to the, the nation as a whole. Urbanization, suburbanization, development of the inner cities, and so on. And that was really her great project after the war. That's Drew Johnson. My name is Drew Johnson. I'm the curator of photography and visual culture at Oakland Museum of California. Drew curated the new Dorothea Lange exhibition that's running at the Oakland Museum from now until August. 
And I'll be honest, until recently, I didn't know that Dorothea lived most of her life in Berkeley. Even some of the people that worked on the exhibition were amazed to see how many photographs in the show are not only Bay Area, but East Bay. There's Oakland, Berkeley, did a whole series on the Richmond shipyards. So she went all over the world, but her Bay Area connections were very, very deep. The show at the Oakland Museum features her Great Depression photos from all over the country. It's also going to show her lesser-known Bay Area work, which was mostly from the 1940s and 50s. And here's the reason why her photography is so iconic and still so relevant. Because the story she was telling with these different photos from different places and eras, well, it gets back to that one big story idea. And we're still living in it. On one level, it's a story of inequality and migration and development. But on another level, it's just... This is what it's like to live in a world where everything is always changing and keeping up is a struggle. She saw herself as having a particular ability, a particular talent, and that talent was to reveal circumstances of people, relationships between people. It wasn't even always terrible circumstances of poverty or misery. It was uh, just, uh, she did a whole series on things like shoppers, how shoppers looked when they were downtown San Francisco or coming out of Swan's Market in Oakland. Just relationships about how cities were changing things. So You can tell from looking at her photos that Dorothea Lange understood something really deep about human nature. So that's what today's episode is about looking at Dorothea's life and her work to figure out what that was. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. When Dorothea Lang was a little girl, One of the most famous dancers in the world was a woman who grew up in Oakland named Isadora Duncan. She's one of the creators of modern dance, and she developed a style that was kind of like the opposite of ballet. Instead of being precise and technical and skinny, Isadora had a natural, aggressive style, and she wasn't petite. She had curves, and she worked them. Anyway, When Dorothea was a teenager living in Hoboken, New Jersey, she went to go see Isadora perform in New York City. It changed her life. Watching Isadora Duncan perform was freedom for Dorothea. You know, that a woman dared to be so free. Again, Elizabeth Partridge, Dorothea's goddaughter and biographer. You know, she was from a very Germanic family, and there was a lot of limits on who she was supposed to be. So that was freedom for her. That was just looking at somebody just enjoying themselves and reveling in their body and what they could do. I think that was like an insight for her of just being free in a certain way that her life was not looking like it was going to be. The reason why her life was looking like it wasn't going to be very free well, other than the fact that she was a woman living in the early 1900s, was because she got polio when she was a kid. The disease left her with a twisted foot. She walked with a limp for the rest of her life. Seeing Isadora just shattered Dorothea's sense of what was possible. 
Even though she had never touched a camera, she decided around this time that she wanted to be a photographer. Somehow, she managed to get jobs and apprenticeships in New York's top photo studios. After a couple years of this training, when she was 23, Dorothea decided it was time for an adventure. Dorothea was in Hoboken, New Jersey, learning a lot about photography when she decided to set off an around-the-world trip with a friend of hers named Franzi. So she and Franzi, like, took a train out west, because that was how you set off around the world. You got in a train. So they got as far as San Francisco, and the very first day they were there, Franzi was carrying all their money, and a little person was pickpocketed. And so they were stuck in San Francisco. What happened next is classic Dorothea. She took a bad situation and turned it into an opportunity. Dorothea immediately found a job at what they called a photo refinishing counter, which would be at the back of a drugstore. In those days, you would drop off a roll of film and get your negatives made and your photographs made. After she'd been there just for a couple of days, my grandfather went in to get some photographs that he'd had developed there. And he met Dorothea. And he came home and he said to my grandmother, You've got to meet this woman I met today. Her name's Dorothea Lang, and she practically jumped across the counter. Her energy is so enthusiastic. So they had her over for dinner, and that was the beginning of a lifelong friendship between the two of them. Elizabeth's grandmother was a pioneering fine art photographer named Imogen Cunningham. Through Imogen, Dorothea made a lot of connections. She was able to get funding to open up a fancy portrait studio, and her shop became one of the hippest hangout spots in the Bay Area's bohemian art scene. She became friends with people like Ansel Adams. She hung out with Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera when they were in town. And she married one of the biggest West Coast painters of the time, Maynard Dixon. As her reputation grew, her clientele got more and more elite. She said, I was the one you came to if you could afford it. Again, Drew Johnson of the Oakland Museum. It's really where she honed her trade. It's where she developed her technical expertise. It's more, most importantly of all where she developed her ability to uh, her establish rapport with people she was photographing, to really take time with people, to sort of get to know them and think about what the best way to express their personality visually was. And that totally laid the groundwork. Overall, the Roaring Twenties were a happy time for Dorothea. She and Maynard had two kids, so juggling family and work was hard because she didn't want to give up her career, but she got by. Then the economy crashed and everything changed. As the Great Depression was really closing in on people, people would, you know, they were heading west, looking for work, looking for a way to make a few bucks, looking for a handout, just trying to get by. There was this just kind of urge to head west. They would get to San Francisco and then they really could not go any further west. They were done. And so where her studio was, she could look down on the streets, and these men would all be milling about, just not knowing what to do, where to go, how to move on in their lives. And one day she just said to herself, I'm gonna see if I can grab a hunk of lightning I'm going to go down there and I'm going to take a picture of these guys, come back, develop the negative, make a print, and put it up on my wall in my studio and see if in 24 hours I've grabbed that hunk of lightning. And she did. 
And it was the beginning of an absolutely life-altering career change for her. The photograph that Dorothea hung on her wall after that first trip down to the streets, it's now known as White Angel Breadline. And it's one of the most famous photographs ever taken. A few years ago, a vintage print of it sold for over $800,000. What makes a photograph iconic? Beats me. It's, you know, it's, it's really mysterious. I can give you one tiny hint. Sure. Okay. If you have two contrasting things in a photograph, you increase the power of the photograph. In White Angel Breadline, you see a man holding a tin cup, leaning on a fence. Behind him is a sea of other men. They're facing away from him. You see his tremendous loneliness in the crowd. So those two things pop. But a lot of people could take those photographs, and they wouldn't be brilliant. They would be factual, but they wouldn't be iconic. It was totally instinctive. She really operated on instinct. It's a rare moment where you have the sense of someone discovering their purpose instantly and then never looking back. Because from then, several more trips onto the streets of San Francisco. Her work gets noticed by Paul Taylor and others, and that was really what kicked it all off. Okay, so who's Paul Taylor and what got kicked off? Paul Taylor was an economics professor at Berkeley. He was really the first person to study Mexican farm workers in California. He saw some of Dorothea's photos of the 1934 general strike at a gallery in Oakland, and a light bulb went off. The goal of Paul Taylor's research was to fight for better conditions for the farm workers he was studying. His bright idea was to recruit Dorothea as his partner because he knew that combining her photos with his reports would draw a lot more attention to the absolutely hellish exploitation that was happening out in the fields. So they started to, to, to take these road trips. Uh, you know, in California, even then, the situation you had was large factory farms that employed seasonal farm labor, which means there's plenty of work for a short time, and then when the crops when it's all picked and done, it's like, goodbye, you're out of work, we want nothing to do with you. Obviously, the Associated Farmers uh, did not want people snooping around, taking photographs and, and recording. Or, as Dorothea put it, If they don't like you down here, they, they kill you and throw you in a ditch. So, not exactly the most romantic situation, but her and Paul did fall in love. And after she divorced Maynard, they got married. This was when she moved to Berkeley. Paul had a house near the university. But the marriage wasn't the only thing that came out of this. Remember, this is during the Great Depression, and President Roosevelt had created all these new government agencies as part of the New Deal. One of them was called the Farm Security Administration, or FSA, which was trying to help small farmers and sharecroppers. One of the reports that she did for the state fell into the hands of Rexford Tugwell, who headed the FSA and Stryker, and they were just blown away. Stryker was Roy Stryker, who became Dorothea's boss when the FSA hired her. The report was one of the farm worker projects she did with Paul. They said that they basically had no idea that, that photographs could be so powerful in arguing for exactly what it was that they were trying to accomplish. And it says it changed the whole direction of the agency, seeing those, those reports. During the Great Depression, a lot of small farmers lost their land through foreclosure. 
That's why there were so many families roaming the country looking for work or even just food. The way her photos were used during the Great Depression is they were sent back east to this guy, Roy Stryker, and it was his job to get the photos out in newspapers and magazines to create empathy in the public for the people who were getting hardest hit during the Depression. And also the photographs were used in Congress to show people in Congress where help was needed so they would pass uh, financial aid packages. Dorothea spent the next few years crisscrossing the country, taking the photographs that would end up visually defining the era. Mostly portraits of people who had lost everything. This was also when Elizabeth's dad, Ron Partridge, started working with Dorothea. His previous job had been lugging Ansel Adams' gear around Yosemite. Dorothea had Ron drive her around while she went out looking for photographs, working for the Farm Security Administration. He would be driving and she would be saying, slow down, Ron, slow down, because she was looking for anything that would capture her interest. A boss, a camp, people in the fields working. You know, she was just, she just wanted to go slowly till she found something she wanted to get out to investigate. Slowing down. This is how she was able to take portraits of people that appear so honest and real. She was patient, but also she didn't have a choice. She knew how to take her time before she took a photograph. Now, partly she was forced to because of her polio. She couldn't just, as she said, swoop in and swoop out like the newsboys do. She couldn't do that. She had to walk slowly up to a person and then ask them who they were, what they were doing there, and then answer questions about herself, what she was doing, how many children she had. And when those things were through, she might ask if she could take a photograph. She really always brought it back to spending time with people. She also talked about being a small, non-threatening woman with a limp and the role that played in, you know, not be, never being a threatening kind of a person. It, it really, you know, if you could sum it up in one word, it would be empathy empathy for what she called the walking wounded, uh, which was a category that she considered herself part of due to especially the polio, but also uh, other aspects of her childhood. Her father abandoned the family when she was about 12. Those kind of things, those were adversities she had to overcome. And the limp was with her every single day. So she certainly was always aware of people's ability to overcome adversity. There's a word that's always used to describe the way people look in Dorothea's portraits. Dignified. It's a cliche, and it's kind of close to being condescending, but it's accurate. Even though they're poor and hungry and often dirty and their lives have been uprooted, people in Dorothea's photographs don't look pathetic or broken. They look resilient. She felt the key to motivating change was to create identification. These photos were meant to create empathy so that people would support New Deal welfare policies. And to have empathy, there needs to be an interaction. The viewer needs to be able to see themselves in the subject. You need to think, that could be me. Eventually, World War II ended the Great Depression. Dorothea's two main projects from this era both have East Bay connections. 
For one series, she documented the Kaiser shipyards in Richmond. For the other, she followed Japanese-American families as they were forced from their homes and imprisoned in the Manzanar quote-unquote camp near Death Valley. In the exhibition, we present as two sides of the same coin of the home front. One is everybody pulling together to build ships in Richmond, in the Richmond shipyards, working 24-hour shifts and really pulling for Uncle Sam, and it's a workforce that's integrated racially and, by, and men and women working together. And then this sort of the dark side of that, of pulling together for the war effort, is the internment and sending all these people of Japanese descent off to the concentration camps or the imprisoned camps, however you want to describe them. But they both were framed as, we have to do this to win the war. First, let's talk about the shipyards. This operation went from nothing to the biggest shipbuilding operation in history, practically overnight. In 1944, there were nearly 250,000 workers cranking out several ships for the military every single day. All of a sudden, thousands of people were pouring into the Bay Area to work for the defense industry in the shipyards. And they had round-the-clock shifts going on. A lot of the people working in the shipyards she was very clear about were the same people she photographed as that were Dust Bowl migrants or uh, people, black people living under the Jim Crow South that she photographed when she was down there. And suddenly here was this employment. It's been described as the second gold rush. Dorothea wanted to show the effect of having so many people move into an area so quickly. So there's one beautiful photograph she took of a sign that talks about shift workers, you know, never ring this doorbell because there's always somebody sleeping. And, and she talked about how there would be beds that were rented out on an eight-hour schedule so that you had that room. You were one of the three people that rented that room, and people would rotate through a bed because there was no housing. Men and women of all races, working together, living side by side, it was unprecedented at this scale. After the crushing segregation that she'd seen in the South and in California, where Latino and Asian farm workers were treated as second-class citizens, wait, sorry, you know, they were actually treated worse than that because they weren't even allowed to vote. Anyway, the point is Dorothea saw this erosion of racial barriers as a good thing, but she also wasn't totally on board with this industrial boom. I'll get to her environmental concerns in a bit, but I think she saw it as a not-so-great preview of the future. There's a beautiful photograph she did of a stream of workers coming down the stairs at the end of their shift. And when she was looking at that photograph, long after she'd made it, she said, What's so interesting about this photo is no one is looking at anyone else. She was caught by the detail of how separate their lives were, even though they were all working together in such intense circumstances. When she looked at the workers, she saw alienation. Dorothea was the first woman to have a solo show of photography at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. But for most of her life, she didn't really consider herself an artist. Sure, she cared about composition and all that technical stuff, but she wasn't just trying to make an impression on the viewer. She was sending a message. She's the most subtle of photographers. 
in some ways, that balance, uh, walking the line between uh, the combination of something that's beautiful but not too beautiful. Not so beautiful that you ever forget that those two young children wearing tags about to be sent to the concentration camp are now considered to be numbers and not humans. I did an episode about the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II last month. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, check it out. The U.S. Army actually hired Dorothea to document this process because, well, it's actually a little unclear. It seems like maybe they just wanted to have evidence showing that their concentration camps, which is what the government called them, weren't as bad as the Nazi ones. When Dorothea did her work for the Farm Security Administration, she was completely allied with the goals of how her photographs were being used. When she photographed the Japanese-American incarceration, she was adamantly opposed to what was happening to the Japanese-Americans. But it didn't stop her from doing it because she felt it was critical to create a sympathetic record. The military hated the work Dorothea produced. Her photos were meant to convey empathy for Japanese-Americans. Heartbreaking photos of little girls saying the Pledge of Allegiance wasn't what the army was looking for. They ended up clamping down on Dorothea and restricting what she was allowed to show. She felt thwarted and helpless and that she had not really accomplished anything. And in fact, the photographs were withdrawn from circulation and not seen for decades. And so I think she would be very pleased to see the attention they're getting now. People look at those photographs of the internment and they immediately make the connection to anti-Muslim hysteria and fear of immigrants and, uh, you know, uh, scapegoating groups of people and so on. Unfortunately, Dorothea had no way of knowing that these pictures would finally get the recognition they deserved decades after her death. You have to understand that the number of Americans that actually were vocally critical of the internment policy was just a tiny, tiny minority. Uh, most were for it, and everybody else was basically didn't give a damn. Interestingly, the only time she seems to have uh, been affected to the point of having a, a nervous breakdown by the things she was photographing was the internment, which is pretty amazing when you think about some of the things she saw and recorded during the Depression. She felt things very, very deeply. So for her to look at these people patiently lining up to wait for a meal, it, it just was devastating to her. So she would go do her photography for the day, and then she'd go back to like a hotel where she might be staying for the night, and she would just have these terrible, terrible stomach pains. She must have had some health problems before that, but that threw her into a long, long period of it. It actually was the beginning of a seven-year period where she wasn't able to even photograph, where she almost died. Um, so she just went into this terribly steep health decline, and certainly doing that work was a, was a part of those health issues for her. She was fascinated by change. She felt sort of a melancholy. She would talk about how, in my lifetime, these enormous changes have happened. And she would, for instance, um, this big, fabulous Victorian house in Oakland that became an office for a used car lot 
things like that. And then certainly the freeway construction and junked car lots, a lot of what you could describe as uh, real pioneering environmental photography. There's definitely a regret about losing sort of the, the more rural aspects of the Bay Area. There's no question the sprawl, the housing tract. She was interested in all that and photographed all that. And then, of course, culminating in the uh, Death of a Valley photo essay that she worked on with Purple Jones, which was all about recording what happened to the people in the in the Monticello, the little town at the bottom of the Berryessa Valley, who all had to be removed, evacuated, their houses burned down, the trees removed, the graves dug up. Uh, this really eloquent photo essay about the loss of uh, a loss of a small community, not just loss of the town and the physical, but breaking up the relationships that had been part of daily life for a century or more. This town in Napa, Monticello, was destroyed so that a dam could be built. It's all underwater now. One of the photos shows a giant machine that looks like a bulldozer, but instead of a scooper in front, the thing has huge metal teeth. It looks like a monster. It's hard to tell, but the guy driving it kind of looks like he's smiling. Dorothea also spent time wandering around Oakland. Sometimes she would take pictures of shoppers coming out of Swan's Market. There's even a picture she took of well-dressed ladies walking down Telegraph with the iconic Fox Theater sign in the background. You know, she had this fascination for the way people interacted with one another in public. I think she saw what was happening here as having larger implications for what was happening across the country. It was just a microcosm. In the late 1950s, she was doing photo essays for Life magazine, one of the biggest publications in the country. But when she decided to take a pretty dark look at Oakland's criminal justice system, the magazine refused to run it. Here's Drew Johnson describing one of the photos. It's just a close-up of an Oakland Police Department badge on the policeman's chest. You see a little bit of his uniform, and we're actually blowing that up to about four feet high, along with 13 others in the entry to the exhibition. It um, doesn't take too much to... Um, I mean, I look at that photo, I feel intimidated. Another photo is a close-up of the back door of a black police van. It looks very Darth Vader-ish. She called the project Public Defender, because the main character in this series was a lawyer named Martin Pulich, who worked for clients that couldn't afford one. A lot of these defendants were ex-factory workers who had been laid off after the wartime boom. This was the beginning of the so-called white flight era. I think the Public Defender series is one of the most beautiful, unseen groups of Dorothea's photographs. It's so tender and evocative. I mean, when you look at, there's a photograph she did of a mother with a baby in a bottle waiting to hear about whatever her husband's been charged with, what will happen. And the woman's just sitting alone in this row of seats. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. This photo was taken inside the Alameda County Courthouse, right across the street from where the Oakland Museum sits today you totally feel how hard the public defender is working to try to do a good job, you know, to represent people who don't have any money. It's, it, it, is her, it is Dorothea's theme, you know, which is, what about the underdog? 
At the beginning of this episode, I said we would explore Dorothea Lange's life and her work to figure out what it was that she understood about human nature. I'm sorry, but I don't know if it's really possible to put the answer into words. You've just got to go look at her pictures and see for yourself. Thank you so much for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. For this episode, I want to thank Drew Johnson and Lindsay Wright and everyone at the Oakland Museum of California. Also, Elizabeth Partridge, Charles Wallenberg, and the Oakland Public Library. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I post photos related to each and every episode, as well as upcoming events and other cool local history news. There are links to all those social media pages at eastbayyesterday.com. And please, if you think today's episode was a story that should be heard, the only way it's going to reach people is if you, the listener, tell people about it. Please spread the word. And if you give East Bay Yesterday a shout out on social media, be sure to tag the show and review it on iTunes too. That really, really helps. Thank you. Music for this episode was provided by Carol Gibbons, Ozzy Nelson, and Studio Noir. The theme song came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.